0: This is your profanity warning. You're warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. You see, Vetus?
1: I have cared for her tenderly and well. You will find her almost as beautiful as when you last saw her. She died. Two years after the war. How? Of pneumonia. She was
2: never very strong, you know. And the child? Our daughter? Dead. And why is she... Why is she like this?
3: Is she not beautiful?
1: Students, before we begin, a quick announcement. There are no pets allowed in the dormitories. This is not only for your safety, but because several members of the class suffer from mylorophobia.
0: Yeah, and go easy on the freshmen. They've only spent the last 18 years in a Soviet prison camp.
1: For the rest of you, welcome to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Winnick. I've decided to leave off the Eric for this episode.
0: Well, if if you're Winnick, then I'm going by one name, too. So you're Winnick, I'm Lorick, and Scare You is still a podcast about horror films told from several points of view.
1: We call this podcast Scare You because one of us is going back to school today, as it were, to learn something new, and this jerk will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet. As a sign by a true horror aficionado, me. And just to show how much I love you, sir, I am skipping the last quarter of the Celtics-Sixers game for this recording. Well, I don't know who they are or what they're playing, but- Joining us today to discuss the 1934 film, The Black Cat, is our first duo, partners in work and life, Hope Cartelli and Jeff Lewansik. Hey there, guys. Hi. Hello. So we're going to tell
0: the folks a little bit about you guys. Uh, Jeff and Hope are creative polymaths who've been deeply involved with New York's independent theater scene for about 15 years, having worked as associate directors of Williamsburg's Brick Theater for nearly a decade, uh, producing hundreds of shows and festivals. They've created dozens of shows through their own theater company, Piper McKenzie, including horror adjacent outings, especially through their bizarre science fantasy series of silent dance theater works.
1: Now, more recently, the two have been acting, directing, presenting, entrepreneuring. Jeff is also a writer and an illustrator who's published two short books, the art zine Better Bones, and the first installment of an ongoing serial called The Congress of the Monsters. With book two coming out later this year, we will, of course, feature their full bios on our website, scaryupod.com. But hey, back to you guys. How are you both doing, and
0: what have you been up to?
2: Well, I personally have been up to um, my... Um, monthly soap opera for the stage. Um, I'm part of this amazing crew who puts on an 80s soap opera, comes replete yes. with all of the big hair and bling, mm. actors playing doctors and co that you might expect from such a thing. It's been really fun. And it's somehow miraculously going into its eighth year. I don't know how that happened. It's amazing.
0: And tell us what it's yeah. called and where to see it.
2: It's called It's Getting Tired, Mildred. You can see it at the Crane every month, Saturday, um, the second Saturday of the month at 8 p.m.
1: Is there jazzercise involved?
2: Yes. Not every episode. So you want to come because you never know when it's going to hit. But yes.
1: You never know. Uh, Mr. Lewantic, how are you and what's going on?
3: I'm well, thank you very much. I am, you know, uh, as you mentioned, I'm working on... Uh, series of illustrated books called Congress of the Monsters, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's basically the monsters have to get together and talk about, you know, the best and most efficient ways to capture and eat human beings. And so, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of politics involved with that. And, uh, you know, it is in what, no way. what, what kinds intended. of
0: monsters do we have here, Jeff?
3: So we're talking like, You know, we're talking like medieval era monsters. So our main character is sort of a Cyclops troll. Um, He's the head of one of the political parties. The other one is a uh, a female swamp monster. And they're kind of always at each other's throats. We're going to be introducing werewolves soon. And it's sort of like, okay, if it's part human and part monster, are you allowed to eat it? You know, Mm. we're, we're tackling the big questions.
0: Uh all right, well cool. Now now Winnick, you and Jeff and Hope go way back, right? You have a bit of a history together.
1: Well, I would I would I would hardly call it a history, Loric. I mean, I've known them. We've like done stuff together. Do you not want to talk about it? No, of course I do. Listen, um, <laughs> Jeff and Hope are two wonderful human beings. I started Seeing their their shows, oh my gosh, this must have been in the mid-2000s. Um, Just the about Brick. 20
3: years ago, yeah. Just All about right. 20 years like ago. Both, I think we met in 2003. Wow,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. We met at the Essex restaurant. Mm-hmm. It was, I believe, somebody's birthday. Was it Carolyn Rashid's yes. birthday party?
3: Yep.
1: And And yeah. um, I took a liking to you, and I started going to the bizarre science fantasy shows at The Brick. And I was so jazzed by them that I just wanted to work with you guys in any capacity I could. So um, you invited me to be part of the the Baby Jesus One Act Jubilee, which I had a great time doing. And I did some audio design for you. And also, uh, is that it? That might be it. I don't know. I'm sure you there's other stuff. You wrote about us, too, for, wrote, for yes. You wrote yes, a little profile right. about I us, I awesome. That's right, for Martin. That's right. And yes. Rochelle. Of course, Rochelle. Rochelle. Yes. Rochelle. So, yes, um, I have immense amount of respect for these two. And um, it's so nice to be collaborating with you once again in a fashion.
0: So, Jeff and Hope, the first thing we must ask our guests... Is what are your histories with the horror genre, and what are your favorite horror films? Hope you want to go first.
2: So my history with the with with the horror genre definitely starts with the Universal monsters. I was all about them when I was little. Um, loved watching. I don't know. <laughs> I think Jeff shares this, but like when i was little they did a special thing um where you could go to i think for us it was to burger king you could get your 3d glasses and they had a Ooh. special 3d showing of creature from the black lagoon and yes. they advertised amazing. this in the newspapers this was like a huge deal i watched it with my nanny, my grandpa in his den like it, this was huge like all my friends we were all talking about this it was great it was amazing Um, my mom would take me to, I grew up in New York city. She would take me to any and every special fun showing of, um, a re-release or if there is like a special thing at like a film forum, or there used to be a really cool movie theater under Carnegie hall, they would show great stuff. It's how I saw things like King Kong, definitely all about the universal and the black and white, um, old fun horrors. And then she was responsible for me growing into one of my most favorite horror films ever, which was *An American Werewolf in London*. Besides that, on a, as I've grown up and gotten to see a lot more, I'm obsessed with real estate and architecture in horror. I love, Ooh. I love houses that are seeking revenge. I love, like we we got to see a couple years ago *The Sentinel*, which is probably the best. Oh yeah. Real estate horror film ever.
3: (laughs) I mean, New York City real estate, right? It's the best.
2: It's the best and it's there i mean it's amazing and well
3: i'd also say too like we've been on a big brian de palma kick lately yes! and like yeah. every one of his movies is like totally playing with the you know the the urban spaces and the architecture like yeah. you know body double there's that whole like you know uh stalking sequence in the mall when these
2: places are the character like i think that's it's great it's so fun
1: so jeff why don't you take us back and tell us about your history <laughs> with the horror genre <laughs>
3: Absolutely. So when Hope was talking about the Universal Monsters, I had remembered for the first time in like decades that when I was a kid, I had a little Universal Monsters playset. Yes! It came in a little vinyl case that was shaped like a haunted house and you opened it up so wow. that one uh, side of the case was the floor. It had a little trap door you could open up in it and it came Ooh. with little like Star Wars figure sized. Um, a Dracula, Universal Monsters. Yeah, a Dracula, a was- Frankenstein, a creature from the Black Lagoon, a Wolfman, and a Phantom of the Opera. Yes.
2: What?
3: I still have mine, guys. <gasps> That's awesome. I'm
2: super jealous. The I feet not fell
3: notice. off of mine. I played with them so hard, the feet fell off. <laughs> where I love horror the most has always been where it touches, uh, brushes up against comedy, uh, and and so anything that is horrible or uses horror tropes in a funny kind of way is just like catnip to me. And so that's, you know, how Sue is, is, is right in there. That's why of all the universal uh, pictures uh, I, I love the James whale ones the most yeah. because humor is such a rich yeah. vein in those like laugh out loud humor in a lot of cases, wow. like uh old dark house, Bride of Frankenstein mm-hmm. in particular are like just, yeah. just true true standouts for me. Um, and, and that, Thank that, you, that,
0: Ernest Thesiger. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. One of
3: the greatest of all time. Um, but that that horror comedy connection comes together in sort of an interesting anecdote that I have to share, which is that um, about 15 years ago, due to a truly bizarre chain of circumstances, I was tapped to direct um, uh, a stage musical written by uh, William Peter Blatty, who most people know as the uh, author and screenwriter of The Exorcist, one of the most unsettling, disturbing movies of all time. And, And a lot of people either don't know or don't remember that, you know, he was initially, and to an extent, primarily a writer of comedy. He wrote uh, movies for Blake Edwards. He wrote A Shot in the Dark, you know, the second Pink Panther film. And so uh, this was a musical based on a comedy he'd written in the 60s called John Goldfarb, Please Come Home um, that starred Shirley MacLaine and Richard Crenna and Peter Ustinov with a whole lot of really like poorly dated, you know, sort of uh, Middle Eastern ethnic humor. Uh, Shirley MacLaine is undercover in a harem. It's like ridiculous and 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 so these songwriters decided to make a musical out of it and it got in the fringe. And Blatty was like, well, I'll let you do it, but I'm going to rewrite the book. And he came to New York and spent the summer with us and, you know, told us all of his Hollywood stories and stuff. And he was like a real character. It was a fascinating experience. I never thought I'd spend that much time with the creator of The Exorcist, but there you have it.
0: Thank you, Kay Kaiser. Winnick, will you give us a brief, spoiler-free synopsis? And, of course, I, I don't mean brief in the underpantsy sense.
1: Jeez, I did not think you were going there. Um, okay, brief. Uh, all right, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Let's Let's give it a go. Here we go. An American couple, Peter and Joan Allison, are traveling by train through Hungary when they're told their cabin has been double-booked. Dr. Vitas Vertigast, a psychiatrist, just released from 18 years in a prison. <laughs> <laughs>
2: good job on the name, well, dear God! Good job. Well, on it that.
0: sure, it sounds. It sure it sounds dumb when
1: you say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's it's really bad when I break this early in the synopsis. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's let's give that a go. Dr. Vetus Vertigast, a psychiatrist who has just been released from 18 years in a prison camp, not to be confused with Psycho's Arbogast, soon joins them for the short ride to their destination. The same place Vertigast is going, he claims, to visit an old friend, along with his manservant, Thamal. On their way into town, the bus the four of them are in, runs off the road, killing the driver and injuring Joan. They hike to the home of Vertigast's former military comrade, one Jalmar Perlzig, a renowned architect. Perlzig’s home may be a modern masterpiece of construction, but it's also built on the site of a World War I battlefield where thousands of Hungarians lost their lives and where Vertigast was captured. Now, having returned, Vertigast is ready to take revenge on the man he claims stole his life, and perhaps his wife. But Perlzig has his own surprises in store, and by the time the Allisons realize what terrors await in Perlzig's home, it may truly be too late for all of them. Not bad, Winnick. Thank
0: you. Not bad at all. Thank you. Why don't we tell the people
1: who made this movie? Thanks, Lorik. Let's do it. This film was directed by one Edgar G. Almer, born in 1904 in Olmütz, Moravia, Austria-Hungary, which is now the Czech Republic. Almer walked this earth until 1972, and he has 57 directorial credits to his name, including this film, Isle of Forgotten Sins in 1943, The Naked Dawn in 1955, and Journey Beneath the Desert in 1961. Known
0: primarily for his low-budget B pictures, Ulmer earned the nickname the King of PRC, which doesn't mean what you think it does. It actually stands for the Producers Releasing Corporation, which was the smallest and least prestigious of all the Hollywood film studios in the 40s. He was never nominated for an Oscar
1: or, sadly, even a Fangoria Chainsaw Award. So The Black Cat was written by George Carroll Sims, writing under the pseudonym Peter Rurik. Screen story by Rurik and Almer, suggested by an 1845 story by one Edgar Allan Poe. Maybe you've heard of him.
0: Um, The film, however, stars Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff in the first of their six universal screen collaborations out of a total of eight appearances on film together. Um, As we have subtly suggested today, Boris was clearly going through the Cher Zendaya period of his career as he is billed here and in the old Dark House, mononymically only as Karloff. Um, The film also features David Manners as Peter Allison, Jacqueline Wells, a.k.a. Julie Bishop, as Joan Allison, uh, the very imposing Harry Cording as Thelma, and Lucille Lund as Louise. Uh, I mean... I mean
1: <laughs> Wait, <is> that... <laughs> Oh my god.
0: Harry Cording I... as Thamal, and Lucille Lund as Karen.
1: As a Karen, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought, and then we dunk on the critics.
0: So, The Black Cat was released on May 7th, 1934, sporting a budget of around $96,000 and a box office take of $236,000.
1: In a review published on May 19th, 1934, Andre Senwald in the New York Times said, quote, The acknowledgement which the producers of The Black Cat graciously make to Edgar Allan Poe seems a trifle superfluous. Since the new film is not remotely to be identified with Poe's short story, a clammy and excessively ghoulish take of hijinks in a Hungarian horror salon. It describes with appropriate hysteria the curious behavior of a gentleman named, if the program spelling can be trusted, Jalmar Perlzig. Mm. End quote. Clammy. I like that they had programs back then. I like that they called it clammy.
0: Back to the clam shacks, Senwald. <laughs> but listen, a, a more contemporaneous review from the Losers at Variety claimed, quote, Story is confused and confusing, and while with the aid of heavily shadowed lighting and mausoleum-like architecture, a certain eeriness has been achieved... It's all a poor imitation of things seen before. Come on. This is is 1934. There were still new ideas then, Variety. Come on. Come on. on. However, on the flippity-flop, Anton Battelle of Little White Lies opined, The Black Cat was the first of six Universal films to bring together two of the production house's most iconic horror actors, Karloff and Lugosi. This is a clash of the genre's heavyweights, as monumental in its own way as Godzilla versus King Kong. And when Perlsig suggests to Vertigast that they are like the living dead, the description is not without a certain sophisticated kind of self-consciousness.
1: Now, speaking of self-awareness, I should add that Battelle quotes, probably my favorite line in the film, which accompanies the gesture that that Lugosi makes whenever he sees a black cat or he sees it for the second time at this point. And Karloff asks him, quote, of what use are these melodramatic gestures? And as an audience, we're like, yeah, what is the deal with those gestures? (laughs) (laughs) And now's our opportunity to ask the professor the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is you, sir. But before we get started, I just want to confirm, Hope and Jeff, unlike me, you had in fact seen this film before, correct? That is
3: correct. Yeah, we watched it about a year and a half ago.
1: Great. So now please inform us and our listening audience, Professor why you chose this film for the Scare You curriculum.
0: It's a totally
1: self-contained,
0: neat, tidy little exploration that's, I think, about as easy to experience as it is hopefully to talk about. Um, and I think there's a surprising kind of simplicity to the telling of a very strange and very convoluted story. Um, I think as we've already identified. It's a universal horror film from that great period in the 30s and 40s when Universal effectively controlled the entire genre. And this was Universal's biggest hit of 1934. And I think unlike the the films that we were talking about before with creatures in the lead like Frankenstein or Dracula or the creature from the Black Lagoon or even the earlier um, Phantom of the Opera, Often it's the case, I think, that their more unusual fare is their most engaging, like the old dark house. Um, And I think much like the old dark house, I experienced the black cat for the first time as an adult. Um, And I I hope that we can all agree that the black cat has a lot in common with the old dark house, but with the exception of its tone. Mm -hmm. Because... (laughs) The Old Dark House is really blackly comedic and very witty, but The Black Cat is much more serious, but with the exception of a couple of moments that really kind of, I think, undercut the horror. And and both films, of course, feature a group of travelers stranded or injured who, who find shelter in a spooky home owned by strange characters. And, of course, this is... The union of two horror icons for the first time, which I think makes it required watching regardless. And, you know, of course, in this thing, one of them is this Austrian architect, the other is a Hungarian psychiatrist. And we've got an American mystery novelist, his wife, we've got these two. Super strange, very stylized, and exotic servants. And while we may recognize Peter Allison, who is played by David Manners, who co starred with both Karloff in The Mummy and Lugosi in Dracula, it's these two sort of titans clashing that we're here to watch. We're here to watch them square off in the ring. And I think it, it, represents a collision of all kinds of ideas. You know, this, this movie came out between the wars. It's this, I think, sort of really interesting point in American history. And in this film, it's it's kind of representing a collision of science and pseudoscience and medicine and the supernatural. You know, there's that point at which Verdigast suggests that the narcotic that he's given to Joan, the name of which I am, is escaping me right now, has, has made her mediumistic, which is a strange thing to hear come out of the mouth of a doctor, right? And I think Perlsig straddles a similar line. He's this internationally famous architect who's also a, quote, great dark priest, end quote, and has literally built his home as a temple to Satan. And he, of course, is based on on figures like Aleister Crowley, uh, who was also getting a lot of media attention at the time. Though Ulmer, I think, also suggests that Pearl Sieg is based on the director Fritz Lang, with whom he worked as a scenic designer and said he was a complete sadist. A- and I think also there's something really interesting and exciting about this kind of icy silver Satanism that we get in The Black Cat, It's very neat, very clean, and a huge departure from how the idea of Satanism or witchcraft or rituals or ceremonies would be presented later in the 70s and the 80s, and even now, when Satanism is usually uh, represented with a, a kind of retro throwback 80s sensibility, uh, you know, that that comes from or is informed by hard rock and, and a kind of heavy metal aesthetic sensibility. And of course, in this space that he has made, it's this sort of half luxury transatlantic ocean liner and half New York City penthouse built literally on top of a World War I military fort where tens of thousands of men were killed in an epic battle. And also this movie is just really weird. It's got murder and torture and something akin to incest, but I think it also provokes questions in its audience. Like, why is it called The Black Cat? And why is it attributed to Edgar Allan Poe? And so maybe tonight, Hope and Jeff and Eric, maybe we'll be able to answer some of these questions together.
1: No, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs)
0: <laughs> nah.
1: yeah, <coughs> uh, forget it. Um, well put, sir. Very. Who big. is this Edgar Allan Poe? <laughs> oh,
3: God.
0: And also, do you guys know this? That in Suspiria, like the OG Suspiria, Udo Kier's character is also named Dr. Vertigast, and he's also a psychiatrist.
1: Oh, oh, look at that. oh Dario, you jokester, Dario <laughs> Wario. Dario Wario. Oh, crumbs, it's the fire drill. Everyone, please leave the train single file. Do not head down any dark spiral staircases. And look, should you choose to listen further and you have not seen the film, well, look, that's your own damn business. I got nothing to do with it.
0: Uh, Which means that it's time for study hall. Which, of course, is the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film.
1: We'll be breaking this section up into two segments, on a roll, i.e. what worked, and detention, i.e. what didn't work. Uh,
0: but before we get into it, I have to ask all of you, just to establish where we are in the playing field, give me a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? Hope? Yes. Jeff? Yeah. Winnick? Yes.
2: Whoa!
0: Uh, Okay, well then let's get into it. We'll do honor roll first, and we're going to do it round robin style. So we're each going to name two scenes or aspects or attributes that worked best for us. And then we'll hand out the dreaded detention slips. So Hope, why don't you kick it off... With honor roll nominations, what is your first?
2: My first is the Joan Allison sleepwalking scene, um, <laughs> where she, I guess, is mediumistic. <laughs> so I love it so much. It's it's her big moment to shine. She like walks in there, and what it does to everyone in the room. Like I, I've never seen for, side note, you I feel like I'd never seen Karloff's face, just his face without prosthetics. and in that scene, like the, the way he's looking at her, everybody's just so focused on her. She's so sexy. she's so you're wondering what the hell's in that shot that Vidis gave her <laughs> and like she's she's weird. <laughs> It's great. I adore it. And there's just so much that happens right then and there. And you're left with all of these questions um, that are as, never
3: answered. That are
2: ne- <laughs> <laughs> but as her, you know, and her husband whisks her away and you're like, oh, is he going to give in to this or is he going to try and get her to go back to sleep? What's happening here? I love yeah. it. I just love it.
0: Great. All right, uh, Jeff us an honor roll uh, nomination.
3: Sure thing. I'm just gonna go for the uh you know, sort of the the, the easy target here, and it, it's it's the lead performances. You you go to see, you know, the the Godzilla versus King Kong in this movie. It's it's uh you know, to just see these two legends of the screen sort of try and out ham each other, uh, you know, from from top to bottom is just such a delight, you know, to the point that at the end of the movie they're wrestling together and it's like they're struggling not to hurt each other so much as as to like determine who can strike the most dramatic pose uh, it's 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 just wonderful um and just this spectacular distillation of baroque stylized very self-conscious in a good way over the top acting uh that it's just it's a pleasure agreed
1: and what about you winnick people, this film is fucking insane. Um, <laughs> it, you're you are right, Bradford. It does not have the kind of madcap energy of the old dark house, um, the other film from this era which we covered, but it has a real intensity. And I just want to sort of second what Jeff said because my note is also about the acting. It's another classic Karloff performance in which he has these two heavily made up eyes that seem to do the lion's share of his acting. And almost everyone is on the same wavelength here. Dialogue just doesn't seem to happen. It just kind of oozes. You know, everybody (laughs) kind of fixes their gaze on each other and speaks in this very (laughs) slow unnatural way and all of the gestures are super stylized the way over the top um, manner that in, in which Vertigas reacts to seeing the black cat to the scene at the end in which Vertigas is supposedly skinning Perlzig alive but the last acting note I want to give um, because I'm sure we'll be talking all about uh, Karloff and um, Lugosi goes to the bizarre scene in which the policemen enter the house and two of them <laughs> All right. Two of them have this hilarious kind of argument over which is the nicer town to visit. And it feels to me like Ulmer almost inserted that to allow the audience to catch its breath. It's like a little comedic palate cleanser. So um, my first honor roll goes to the acting. Bradford? Eric, if they
0: spoke faster, this movie would be 25 minutes long.
1: <laughs>
0: Dragging so it out like they do—it's only an hour and five.
1: That's you true. have to that's justify
0: true. the ticket price somehow. Come on,
1: that's true. You know? You're
0: right. But can You're right.
2: I just because I, I loved this so much? Did you catch that Karloff doesn't speak for like so many scenes? He doesn't yeah. say anything yeah. until yeah. he finally his first line is cotton.
1: <laughs> so
3: yes,
2: it's amazing. It's, I love it.
1: Bradford, what's your
0: first honor roll? Um, I think mine is a little bit broad, but I will say that the um, the cinematography, I think, especially for such an early film, is really beautiful and really artful, and it's filled with great little detailed moments. The, the first time you, I think you kind of become aware of uh, the quality of the cinematography is when we're looking at Joan Allison's Passport in that leather gloved hand on the train or when uh when dr vertigast is about to perform surgery for some reason a psychiatrist performing surgery um but there's that gorgeous kind of shimmering bowl of water carried by a servant you know i i think there's also like a beautiful transitional moment. It's the end of that first night. Everybody's been put into their rooms. They're all going to bed. And um, Mr. Allison, David Manners, takes off his jacket and he kind of tosses it toward the camera and it creates this wipe. And all of a sudden it's oh, transitioned yeah. to him like pulling mm-hmm. up the covers, yes, which is really yes, beautiful. I love that. I love that. I, it, just for, for such an early pre-code 1934 film to see such... I think carefully considered cinematographic choices is, is pretty extraordinary.
1: Yes. Uh, So let's go back to hope, shall we for honor roll number two. two.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I feel like somewhat, somewhat related to what Bradford was talking about. um, And you'll, you'll, you'll hear why in a sec. My second honor roll goes to Lucille Lund's hair. I feel mm, like right. it was such an MVP. It had and to it had its own lighting, it felt like. <laughs> like anytime yeah. they splayed it however that whenever they could. I felt like it was, you know, she's she's suspended from it in mm. a glass case. I mean, it's stunning. Um, and it plays two characters, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> Right. So yeah, she's also thinking about the time the movie was made. They make such a big deal about, I mean, it's this gorgeous crown of light on her. And it's so, fr- frankly, it's so Aryan. It's so like, it's Ooh. so just thinking about what's going to happen in those mountains in a few years. Um, yeah. Even though everything blew up, you know, like, I mean, in that moment, thinking of her as a symbol is wild to me in in terms of uh, where things are going to go in a very short amount of time. Um, And she's stunning. I mean, but that hair just stands out to me. It's so gorgeous. And of course it brings with it 8 million questions about just what, what, what he wants from, from her and what what's happening and how is she related to Uh, The rituals that he's trying to pull off and everything else and um, what what he's trying to pull off against um, Vertigast and everything else.
0: Her hair really is like the tungsten in a light bulb or something like it has its own inner light, you know?
2: I want right. Lucille Lund's hair. So, what do I have it to is, do? It is yes. beautiful.
1: I also should point out to our listeners I know you can't see her right now, but Hope also has very luxurious locks. <laughs> so, and Jeff has directed them to, to maximum effect.
3: <laughs> I never put lights inside of them, though. That's a trick I no. Missed.
1: But sometimes do you put Hope in like a glass
0: ossuary? <laughs> oh. kind of. Float a different in a, podcast.
3: <laughs> in a,
2: that's in
0: true. In a transparent coffin in a fortuny
3: gown, you know. I mean, funny story. That's how we met. Yeah,
2: totally.
1: Yeah, that's that's true.
0: Well, that's I didn't want to. I didn't want to tip anything off too early. But Aaron <laughs> told me the whole story before we go on. was like, yeah,
1: well, there's a I reason
0: mean, they wanted to do this movie, and it's yeah. their first date. So. It
1: just feels uh, all too familiar. Um. So, Jeff, l- let's go to your second uh, honor roll nomination.
3: Absolutely. So it's 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 got to be the architecture, you know, just the 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 set design, but also the way that the architecture is um, enmeshed in the narrative, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess like let, starting at the top. So you know, you you they enter this house, uh, you know, and it's 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 the opposite of you know the old dark house. It's like the new bright house. Uh, it happens to be, you know, <laughs> built on top of a cemetery, you know, and as you see the, the, you know, that one wonderful, uh, you know, set painting of, you, you know, the only time you see the exterior of the house with all of the graves, you know, the crosses, yes. uh, in yes. The yes. Foreground. Yes. Um, just, just a tremendous moment. And then you go in the house and it's this, you know, uh, you know gorgeous brightly lit like You know uh, deco style masterpiece And you're like what's going on here This is not what I'm used to seeing in a haunted House and there are moments in those early Scenes where it's like you know if you turn Down the soundtrack and kind of pretended You'd never seen <laughs> Boris Karloff Or Bela Lugosi before you could trick yourself Into thinking it's a Lubitsch comedy uh, It looks like <laughs> nice. a luxury hotel <laughs> right. You know yeah, and really. you have these like yeah. uh, Adjoining rooms with the Doors that open up and it's like oh Maybe you should be in the one next to your wife Life. It's like it's like a sex comedy waiting to happen, um, and of course, yes. it, it 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 does not happen in the way that you expect it to. But uh, you know, so you you have that that sort of like beautifully artificial edifice. Uh, you know, at the top, and that's your introduction. But then you have the scene where Karloff is holding the cat and he walks down the spiral stairs and everything gets oh darker and darker and darker. And you see right. what they were talking about, that this was built on top of this fortress and it's these stone walls and this brick and everything. And he's seeing uh, glass cases that hold these corpses of the dead women that he's loved. And you're just kind of like, oh! and it's And it's, it's just this amazing metaphor of the modernity and luxury of Western culture built on top of uh, you know, just an abattoir built on top of graves, you know, and I feel like that, that, that metaphor just stays so resonant throughout. And then, of course, it's almost like a curveball at the end when you get this, like, you know, gorgeous, expressionistic, Satanistic altar, yeah. you know, with kind of like the yes. double sideways cross yeah. and all of these, like, jagged silver angles all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. totally. You're just, it looks, it looks, it looks like um, a stylized, um, city skyline almost in there yes. you know and you sort of see that like you know in in a sense you have you know this 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 scenario where the the modern has won the slick and the industrial has won and you know they're they're reveling in this but but lugosi returning from from prison is like the you know the return of the repressed and he's going to like you know blows the whole shit up, um, literally, because it turns out at the last minute that there's a switch that controls all the dynamite that's under the house for no reason whatsoever. Uh, And so uh, I find it really fascinating, too, in light of what comes afterwards, you know, like Hope alluded to, like, you know, this is in between the wars. And so, you know, Lugosi coming back and kind of demanding his own is, is in a weird way, like, foreshadowing, like, this story's not done yet you know this mm-hmm. this this uh you know beautiful uh bubbly 1930s uh you know silver and steel facade that you've created is is doomed to fall again and we're going to have to go through this entire process uh and and all of this misery a second time that makes it more haunting now i think than it probably was at the time
0: and you know it's interesting when you talk about that sort of um silver ritual space looking like a a skyline. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but Ulmer was, I I may have mentioned this before, Ulmer was an uncredited set designer on Metropolis.
3: Oh, well, there you go.
2: Yeah. Um,
3: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. He he also did The Golem, the original Mm -hmm. 1920 Golem as a set designer. And so, I mean, I think oh, that, that you is can see that too. there's a, a certain kind of um, scenographic aesthetic sensibility that is is that connects a bunch of these films. And it all comes from Ulmer. All right. Uh, Eric, do you want to give us your next honor roll nomination?
1: Yeah, I do. You know, I, I got to say with this podcast, you know, w- when you're going second or third, you find yourself realizing that people are saying things that you're about to say. And I have mm. to say, like I I have I'll read you exactly what I wrote, but it is a total echo of what Jeff just said. Um, so here's what I wrote. My second honor roll would be for the production design, which was all by Ulmer apparently. Everything from the opening credits in the Ulmer font to the Art Deco, anything goes, ocean liner interiors of the house to the almost German expressionist look of the basement where all mm-hmm. the armaments are stored. It's a stunning looking film. Completely redundant. <laughs> No, I mean you said
3: it beautifully Yeah, and you and, said that, and you were and you were a gracious host for letting me blather about it in <laughs> oh. uh you know 5000 words what you said beautifully in 50.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it maybe it should be said in 5000 words. I don't know. Um but anyway, yes. No, I feel like with those two, with my two honor rolls I just completely repeated what had been said before. But you know what? That's how the cookie crumbles. Um Lorik Let's go with your second honor roll. I'm going to give
0: a shout out to the concept of weird servants in horror movies. Yes. This this horror movie has weird servants in spades. Or or a pair of them.
1: Detention. After school. Both of you. You You'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention.
0: Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect.
1: Okay, now as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips uh, we're each gonna do two of those uh, again, hope as one of our guests. why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention?
2: There's just not enough black cat. there is not enough cat mm. like mm-hmm. I loved I love that it was it, that its first appearance messed with our our poor Lugosi so hard and I wanted to see where that was gonna go. I love every time the cat shows up. I love how Karloff just like just just gently holds him or and and carries him around as he's looking at his dead wives in their cases. Like, and I love how um, he ends up in in Joan's room. I just want more. I wanted more of the cat. I wanted it to met like be part of the ritual at the end, or I wanted uh, ideally just to have one of those moments at the end of, of of some horrors where you're like, oh my god, they're gonna bring the curse with them, like what if they had the cat with them in the train on the way home <laughs> could not leave the cat Ooh. the cat's coming home with them or moving on with them, I think that would have been amazing um, that's, that's such a great idea yeah. on More the subject
0: cats. of the on the subject of the black cat, Hope uh in some writing on the film, people suggest that when uh Vertigast first encounters the cat, he throws the knife at it and kills it, but it comes yeah. back later.
1: Right. Car- I, I um, never
0: thought the cat died.
1: I did. Me I thought it was either. a different cat. I thought he. Had- oh, I thought they oh, referred no, no. to the cat dying. No,
2: but Car- well, here's the thing, Karloff though. Has his whole speech um, after that moment about or around that time about uh, the cat's nine lives. Nine
0: lives, lives. yeah. Ooh. And so I think you that's, know, yeah. that's sort of counterpoint to Bella saying that some ancient texts say that cats are the living embodiment of evil. And then, right. I think Karlov has the line about nine lives.
2: And so, yeah, I because I, I, you think that's what's happening. And it's a weird mirror later on, by the way, with, I mean, he kills. Karen. later on I mean right that's and I remember when I when I first saw it I thought oh god I guess he just really he hit her he did something horrible to her and then a few scenes later you're like oh no oh no nope. he killed her okay that she that's that, but
3: on the she's slab. not coming
2: back. Yeah, she is on the slab. Um But the cat, the cat comes back. The cat is there.
3: I just thought the place was lousy with cats.
2: <laughs> oh no, yeah. I totally it's think gray it's gardens. The one. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: shall we toss it over to Jeff? So uh, what I have to say is sort of an expansion of what Hope was saying, but really. In a lot of ways, the brevity of the film uh, works against it, even as it creates like sort of an exciting experience. There are so many different plot lines and and images and concepts that are kind of picked up and then dropped, uh, in 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 the interest of briskness and just getting to the next thing. And so, uh, you know, the, the fudginess around what the cat means and why are there cats here? And is the cat dead or not as an example. Um, but just, you know, and, and when, uh, you know, uh, Joan was... Temporarily bewitched you know And you think that that's going to turn into this whole plot point And it doesn't really it just kind of she wakes Up again later and doesn't remember any of it and they Move on um, you know I would say That even even the big uh, Satanist reveal as we get to the end You don't get quite enough Of what are they trying to do What is their goal uh, You know where are they coming from Why are they doing this uh, And and I, really there are A lot of different even even down to the fact That like uh, the there's a dynamo might switch that conveniently appears at the very end that allows uh, for a sort of deus ex machina explosion is all of that together is kind of like, I didn't notice that the first time we watched it, it was just a ride and it was fun. But the second time watching it, I'm like, yeah, what did happen to that scene? What did, what, what, why did we lose that? You know, and so on. So that's kind of, uh, what happened,
0: uh, to, the, Karin?
3: The yeah, what happened yeah, to Karin? Yeah. what happened to Yeah, And she's barely there, you know, and I know Hope's going to talk about that in a little bit, but like, you know, there's, it. there's a lot of missed opportunities in this movie. Uh, I don't know if it's things that landed on the cutting room floor, if it was just, a, a, a budget issue, but um, it, it's one of those few movies where I'd actually like to linger a little bit longer on certain things.
0: Yeah, Winnick,
1: let's toss it over to you for a dreaded detention slip. Well, once again, I'm just going to be the guy who repeats stuff. Um, Why don't you just parrot Hope and Jeff? Hope and Jeff. Hope and Jeff. Just... Hope and Jeff. Jeff and I've Hope. I've been telling Hope people this for years. Can I just say I've always wanted to be them, and tonight I get my chance. <laughs> um like, it, Eric if the, if we were in a De Palma film you
0: could be both of them this at I would the same be time.
1: I would be mm-hmm. I would be so here's what I'm gonna say I did feel like you there are a lot of narrative shortcuts being taken in this film and a lot of information is conveyed at the beginning in a massive exposition dump that made the film a little bit of an exercise in keeping everything straight um First, you have Lugosi telling the whole story of what happened to him in the war. Then you have the bus driver telling the story of the graveyard where the house was built. Then you have not one but two characters named Karin, one of, one of whom dies for reasons I couldn't fathom. Um, then you have the satanic subplot, which I actually didn't feel was explored quite in depth, but just kind of exists in the film. All of this kind of makes the film feel more like a mashup of ideas. Instead of a coherent narrative. And that's, of course, a first timer's experience. So, for what it's worth, Lorik, would you like to give your first detention slip?
0: I think part of the problem, also, and this might be a little unfair, but Lugosi is no Demosthenes. You know, it's a bit of a struggle to follow that exposition load that comes at the very beginning and you know even within the things that we're talking about tonight i believe that at one point he's been in prison for 18 years in another moment in the film he's been in prison for 15 years it's just a little bit um tricky i think to to follow everything that he's saying and to take the necessary information from it
1: tricky not unlike the house Correct. It's a tricky house. It is a tricky house. Yeah. All right. Well done, sir. Uh, Let's go back to Hope for detention number two.
2: Sure. I mean, yeah, this builds, I think, just on what everybody's talking about with the with the plot holes and just some of the choppiness, but I had read afterwards something, a little bit of trivia about how Ulmer added the idea, the scene of all of the women in the glass cases, like after he was basically told by Lemley like he needed more mm. horror in there something i thought it was the
3: opposite i thought Lemley told him to tone it down and so he rebelled and actually made it weirder
2: yeah i thought it's how he like he wanted more like violence and he like went more in this direction i also read that he was obsessed with with lucille lund and got (laughs) weird with her as well but i he'd like he'd leave her
0: hanging around in her sarcophagus while everybody else went to lunch
2: yes
1: I yeah. read that too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. She was um, kind of the tippy hedron of her day, perhaps.
3: Yay!
2: Um, That's it. We were still, all complimenting
3: that blonde hair, but right, watch it,
2: right? Um, but I love those. It, that whole setup. It's so. It's such a weird, like, sci-fi lab bluebeard setup. And I want to know more about these women. Just what what happened here? Why? How did this architect? Is this his? Is this the 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 army background? Like, what did he do during the war? Like, what? Why (laughs) is he able? Why is he so deft with a with a slab and and a knife? Like, what? Why mostly
0: necrophilia? I think and sawdust. He got up to during the war.
2: Of course, I want to know more about Karen and her daughter. I don't understand at all. Like, I get the obsession, obviously. And that, I guess you can leave that hanging there, but it just gets so much weirder, the fact that the daughter is alive and he's treating her as the mother and as his wife. And it's so, I just feel like that could have been a whole a whole other thing. Um, so would have at least loved to have known more about that, at, le- at least a bit of a backstory about why, how all those women ended up there. And um, also
0: to reiterate, her name is also... Karen
2: But was
0: junior <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm <laughs> trying to go back and see, like, was she, because he clearly mesmerizes her when they're in the bedroom. He just just passes his hand over her face, but it seems to have some effect on her. And I didn't know if she, like, just believes she, she, she's this other thing or, you know, like, I wondered, like, did she have another name? Is she truly also Garvin? <laughs> like, what is, what's happening?
1: Jeff, detention numero dos.
3: Oh my god, the Allison's were so boring. <laughs> like I'm so I, I get the one thing that I find most tiresome of uh I wanna say like largely like genre or more outré movies of the thirties, you always have to have that boring couple in the center. Like it happens here. It happens in, you know, uh, the old dark house. It happens in the Marx brothers films. You know, you need those, those, those straight characters supposedly to, I don't know. Is that who we're relating to as we go in? Um, Is it just to, as a, as a counterpoint to the insanity of the characters around them, but like with the one exception of the moment where Joan is sleepwalking and, is suddenly like a thousand times more interesting. It's like they go out of their way to make these characters just feel blank, you know, and, and dull. And, and I always find, I, I'm like, wouldn't it be more interesting if they had a little bit more skin in the game? Um, if that's, is that a pun? Is that, I'm not sure if that's a pun or not, but it's, uh,
2: I
1: see but what the, you but, did there.
3: But, right. uh, you know, I, 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 I do feel that in later years, you know, again, we keep going back to De Palma, but like, I love a movie where you don't you can't trust anybody and you don't really know mm. if someone's going to be uh, normal or not. And I, I feel like you there's never that question there. You know, it's almost like, um, you know, a, a hand for the audience to hold so they don't get too scared or something like, well, at least there's still boring American people in this world.
1: Yes. Thank God.
3: Thank God for boring America.
1: Uh, Winnick, detention slip number two. Thanks, Lorik. Um, you know, one thing that always bothers me in films is when the score becomes so prominent that it it becomes intrusive and kind of goes against the, the nature of the scene. I have to say, I feel like so many scenes in this film would have played out so much better and been so much more menacing had Almer dialed back the score or even left it out altogether. Um, It's probably best that the composer, Heinz Romheld is only credited as the musical director here.
0: Well, I don't think he's the composer.
1: He was. According to IMDb, he was the uncredited composer, but he's credited in the film, in the credits, as musical director.
0: See, most of the compositions are
1: classical pieces. Of course, but I'm talking about the regular score that plays throughout I get the film. Yeah. But
0: I, I don't think it's original composition. I think it is a lot of classical stuff. I, there's some Tchaikovsky in there. There's some Liszt in there. But notably, this is among the first films to be score underscored throughout.
1: Which I think is so a it's, mistake.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting that you pointed out as a mistake, since it had rarely been done before this film. Usually... Uh, scoring was limited to uh, opening titles and closing credits.
1: I'm rewatching Psycho right now. And um, I haven't seen it all the way through in a long time. And if ever a film benefited from its score, it's Psycho. The way Hitchcock employs Herman's score in that film is so effective. And watching this film, I was like, I knew what I was supposed to be feeling in the moment and the score was just undercutting that throughout and uh, it was disappointing. So that's detention number two. Uh, Lorik, do you have a second detention? I do,
0: Winnick. And I'm going to say you might have picked up on my distaste for this earlier. It's about the comic interlude with the gendarmerie comparing oh. points of interest in fucking, you know, lakeside towns in uh. Hungary for the, you know, uh. visiting American honeymooners that they could not be more excited to talk about.
1: A little tonally inconsistent for you there, Lorik.
0: You know, I mean, it, there there would be ways to do it that would feel s- strange and like a, a natural outgrowth of the oddness of the rest of the narrative, but... I think the way it's done it's just it feels like it's excerpted from a from a Marx Brothers film or something you know it's like yeah. it, it's it's on the point of slapstick mhm and i think it diminishes the effect of the rest of the film i don't think it's like a little salt on your chocolate bar or something you know to 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 draw attention to all the other interesting flavors i think it actually actively Undermines the work that Ulmer is mm. doing across the rest of the film.
1: You're not wrong, although I I mentioned earlier that I thought it was a bit of a palate cleanser. It was sort of a, a break, a breath in the intensity um, that he yeah kind of proven I that. It,
0: that makes total sense. You you're 15 minutes in, you need a
1: palate cleanser to get through the next 15 minutes.
3: <laughs> it's unnecessary. Maybe it was mandated by the Hungarian tourist board.
1: All right. So before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. Let's get some air into our lungs, run around a bit, uh, expend some energy, maybe have a snack or two. Um, Hope and Jeff, growing up, did you have favorite recess snacks?
2: The days that I could bring bags of combos to school Mm. were the
1: best that
2: was like yeah i could share them that that was that was just beautiful if i opened my lunchbox and found that my mom had bought combos there was the pretzel ones but then there were the cracker ones too
1: boring (laughs) pizza all the way jeff Favorite recess snack?
3: Not so much a favorite recess snack, but uh, uh, a notable recess snack story was that when I was in third grade, <laughs> this one kid who, um, you know, nameless. was, who shall remain nameless. Oh. Uh, <laughs> his name was Mark. But he uh, was <clears throat> definitely kind of, you know, sort of a shady bully kind of kid. You know, you know those uh, fun dips. You know the oh, yeah. the, the colored powder. Yeah. You'd like lick the stick and pick them in there. He, um, kitty cocaine. Uh, yes, yeah. He tried to sell them to me as cocaine, and <laughs> I was terrified and completely narked him out.
2: Oh no! Oh.
3: I was just like. The very, the very thought that somebody would do that, just, I, I, I lost all sense of judgment. But the thing is, I didn't just say no. I also went to the police. Did you
1: actually see him snort the fun dip?
3: You know, that's a good question. Um, he was probably trying to make him. Jeff snort the fun dip. Yeah, that, right. see, I don't think he would have wasted perfectly good fun dip by shoving it up his nose.
1: Like, jump the shark, somebody should make a phrase out of snort the fun dip. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what does that mean? If you snort the fun
0: Let me tell you, I don't think you want to see a gerbil after it's been exposed to that much sugar. <laughs> that gerbil would come out your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let's take a break.
3: <laughs>
0: and we'll come back for the superlatives. <laughs> As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular
1: girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, speaks very highly of you. He's
2: very popular, and
1: Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here
3: either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool.
1: There are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us. Every day for the rest of the week. Oh,
2: it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow.
1: Uh, Welcome back. It's time now to hand out our superlatives. Those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook. Like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us. It's things like character that most deserved. Two Die. So to start us off, let's do the first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for, yes, Gaspar Noe, director of such films as Irreversible, Love 3D, Lux Eterna, Enter the Void, and Climax, among others. Um, so uh, this is Most Disturbing Scene. Um, there are a few to choose from in this film. Um, Let's do that round robin thing again, where we start with hope. What gets your Gaspar Noe award?
2: (laughs) It's uh, uh, it's Karloff walking through his collection of embalmed ladies while carrying his pet cat as if he's just shutting down the house for the night. Um, Mm, It seems so simple on the surface, but it is so freaky and gorgeous and super disturbing. Yeah.
1: Indeed.
3: Well, indeed, uh, yeah.
1: Jeff, uh, what is your most disturbing scene?
3: Well, I mean, geez, you can't go wrong with Bella Lugosi right. peeling Boris Karloff's face off in silhouette.
1: Uh, that is, that is indeed a disturbing scene. Uh, Lorik.
3: Well, I, I,
0: I thought maybe somebody might have selected this one, Stealing My Thunder, but I, I think I'm going to go in a little bit of a, of an uncharacteristic direction here. I think it's the scene uh-uh. early in the film on the train when the Allisons are traveling by themselves and Bela as Dr. Verdigast... Takes a seat uh, in their car in their compartment, and there's a moment where Peter and Joan are asleep, and Doctor Verdegast is kind of molesting a sleeping Joan Allison on the train. He's touching her hair. He's kind of he he kind of begs for forgiveness when Peter opens his eyes, but uh, of all the believable horror of this film. I think that is probably the most disturbing moment. What about you, Winnick? Yeah, that's a good one.
1: So I'm giving it to the scene in which Perltig uh reveals what happened to Vertigast's wife uh, down in the basement. Um, the the weirdest part is they they never really say what he's doing to these women. Like is is he embalming them? Are they in some kind of cryo suspended hypersleep um but just the look on legosi's face when he asks what became of his daughter and karloff's answers saying she died after being rolled in sugar it's like chilling (laughs) chilling all right so let's do the ellen ripley award for character that most deserve to live. And traditionally, when we give out these awards, this is a character who does not live. Ellen yes. Ripley
0: was the character played by Sigourney Weaver in the alien cinematic universe.
1: She was indeed Ripley, believe it or not. Hope, um, character that most deserved to live but did not. Who would you give it to?
2: I got so confused at a certain point as to whether the ritual guests got out alive. <laughs> right. I don't know if they were like, oh, shit's going down. We're we're out of here. And I can't decide something wants I, I, I want them to live. I want I want them and the servants to get out of there. I, I, I assume everybody went down.
1: Yeah, I would assume that I'm too. I'm sure that um, uncredited giving...
0: servant girl was just running down the mountain in her <laughs> dirndl, you know, looking like Heidi, <laughs> kicking
1: up her heels. Jeff, uh character that most deserved to live, who do you got?
3: I don't know. Everyone's pretty irredeemable. I mean, I I feel like you know Lugosi. You know, yeah, he starts out as a creep, and that's one of the interesting sleight of hands of the movie is that he starts out. And you're like, oh god, he's going to be terrible, and he's like more like he's more of a good guy than you expect him to be. So if I have if if, if I was you know. Forced at scalpel point to choose, I'd probably say him. Yeah, I'll let him live. He 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 needs treatment. He has severe PTSD that clearly was not addressed in prison for 15 yeah. and or 18 years. And so, uh, you know, it would. I'd like to think he he deserves another shot to sort of work through that pain a little bit.
1: I think you know I have to. I'm just going to go myself. I I have to agree. I also gave it to. Vertigast, Um, the guy has been through eighteen years in a gulag. Now he finds out his wife's essentially, you know, been flash frozen, and his daughter is sleeping with his sworn enemy. I mean, even though it seems at one point he's acquiescing to Perlzig's plan to have Joan sacrificed, having lost a game of chess, um, he truly seems to be the good guy. At the end, he helps the Allisons escape. So. I'm agreeing with you, Jeff. I'm giving it to Vertigast Lorik.
0: Well, Ellen I Ridley. feel like it's going to be a Bing again, Ned Ryerson. Oh. I'm right there with you and with Jeff. Also, we haven't really talked about it, but I feel like the life and death chess match was definitely mm. an inspiration to Bergman. Oh. Uh, in The Seventh Seal. I don't know. Well, I mean, this came... I don't know. There's a lot of people who play chess well, out there. For life <laughs> and
1: death in a horror movie? I don't They're know.
2: So clearly <gasps> life and death. Yeah.
1: yeah, but it's so metaphorical in that film, though. Well, it's you metaphorical know. It's, here, I don't know. too. I until it say. isn't. Until but it I, think,
0: isn't. I think Lugosi sort of gets a comeuppance that he sort of deserves... For having kind of entangled the Allisons in this scenario. Although, uh, you know, Jeff, like you said, he, he seemingly has these altruistic feelings toward them. Um, and then, of course, as often is the case in films like this, with his dying breath, he sort of fires the dynamos and brings the whole house down on himself. But, I mean... Come on. He was he was a POW for 15 years. He just wanted his wife and his daughter back.
1: 18 years.
0: 15 <laughs> or 18 years. I think the time in the That's POW right. okay. camp actually operates like the structure of this film.
1: That's true. They just so, talk
0: yeah. really slowly.
1: All right. Um, let's do the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die. And as we like to do, we like to have our guests tell everybody who was... Or who is Michael Myers? Hope Jeff, do you want to enlighten our our listeners?
3: I mean, it's it's completely obvious, like a classic, you know, I, I, iconic character. He's the the man behind the Austin Powers films, uh, Wayne's World. Oh, no. uh, so I married an axe murderer, another horror adjacent comedy. You know, really like, uh, you know, what a Canadian, <laughs> what a Canada's finest exports. <laughs> I almost got through that. He's the killer in Halloween. He's Jamie Lee Curtis's brother. He
2: wears an inside out William Shatner mask.
1: Fact. I I have to say, I I had a moment there where I was like, (laughs) I'm going to have to ask this again.
3: (laughs) I'm surprised like every other guest doesn't try and pull that shit.
1: All right. So having said that, well done. Well played um uh hope who do you have for the character that most deserved to die
2: okay all right the driver the driver who's supposed to get mm-hmm. them to the hotel from the train station like it's such a bad storm and if he was paying more attention to the road rather than imparting interesting local history in the middle of this insane storm none of this would have happened wow. so he crashes the jalopy he dies and he should have.
1: <laughs> but I, I suppose you're right. It's uh it's bad driving any way you slice it. Um, Jeff, Michael Myers award for character the most deserved to die. Who do you have?
3: Yeah, it's a gimme. It's Karloff, it's yeah. Pearlsig. Like he's the villain. He's does horrible things to everybody, and he gets his comeuppance at the end. Like, no sympathy, you know. Fun to watch. But yeah, no, he was uh uh, you know, destined for death from the first moment you see him, so interesting. It he wants is. it,
1: Karloff. Uh, Lorik, oh, who do you have for um, the Mike Myers award?
0: Unrepentant Satanist and murderer, <laughs> Hjalmar
1: Pelzig. Easy, <laughs> yeah. okay. So, you and Jeff are agreeing on that. Oh, I'm yeah. gonna go in a slightly, slightly different direction here, uh, guys. I'm gonna say it's the fuck book critic who writes that Peter's latest novel is too fucking far-fetched to be true. I mean, who needs critics? Anyway?
0: I love that you went there. That is great. I, just
1: like, to supr- I like to surprise that you. That is out-of-the-box really thinking, do. Winnick. This is how you you, keep it fresh
3: after all these episodes.
1: You know, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Which brings us to the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment. You know, who doesn't love a Ken Russell film? I mean, from the devils to to the the deep blue sea. Oh my god,
0: Salome's Last Dance. Also, whore. 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 (laughs) whore. Take the money! Whore! Whore! Yes.
1: Well, actually, because you did that so well, Mr. Lork, I'm going to have you start us off what wins your Ken Russell Award? Oh for well, those thank Baroque god I can moment. feel
0: like I'm having an original thought for the first time tonight. Yes, I get to go first. It's the
1: flaying of Zieg by Vertigast Baroque, Baroque
0: and Esoteric.
1: Mm. All right, well, you know what? Just to flip the script, I'm gonna go second here. Ooh. Um I, you know, I in a film like this, I would say normally if you have a black mass. That's probably going to be a Baroque scene, like it was in The Devil Rides Out, like it was in House of the Devil. But here, and again, this is just my opinion, I think it's given such short shrift, I'm not going to give it to that scene. So I think it has to be Karloff's initial entrance from rising up out of the bed as if he's been reanimated to his very stop, start, stop, start kind of entrance in the room, wordless, as Hope pointed out. And Ulmer really lays it on thick, as if to say, you want Karloff, folks? I'll give you Karloff. I'll give you Karloff with a flock of seagulls hairdo. Basically <laughs> basically levitating into a room and glaring at people without saying a fucking thing. Wow. I love it.
3: That's mm. genius.
1: Let's go to Jeff for the <laughs> most baroque screen moment.
3: All right. For me, it's the moment when uh, Bela Lugosi is being reintroduced to his dead wife in a glass case. And he is so Mm. shocked that he steps backward into a giant chart against the wall that shatters into pieces around him. It's like, wait, why is there a giant chart? I mean, we know it's the chart room, but why is it so big? And why does it shatter? Why is it glass? Like, it is so weird. It is like... It is yeah. like it is like early Buñuel. It is like a straight up surrealist moment, uh, and and there's nothing else quite like it in the movie for just pure like wait what it 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 doesn't even feel literal. It, it's so strange and inexplicable that it 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 stuck with me definitely.
1: Hope, what do you have for the Ken Russell Award?
2: I am going for the for the the mass setup the the whole ritual the set. The, the cross is amazing. Mm-hmm. The guests, you've got all of the women dressed in white. And I started to just like, especially they circle around the one girl who screams and faints. And I'm like, this is like a Martha Graham dance mm-hmm. piece. And he's got that robe and that necklace. Like Mar- Martha Graham had that same, like what was on the necklace in her hair. I feel like it just was translated later or around the same time. Like, I mean, it's gorgeous it's amazing I, I think the whole setup of it bringing down Joan and and then she's like fainting on the cross and the whole the whole thing is just perfect and I I feel I felt like I could see that in a Ken Russell film. So
0: basically what you're saying hope service. is that we need to put this up on stage with Richard
1: move as Yalmer Polzig. <laughs> yes
2: I'm all for it.
1: It's been fun, guys, but it really is time for our final award. And that is, of course, the Brad Dourif Award for character who could or should have been played by the great (laughs) Brad Dourif. Um, Now, of course, if you've been following this podcast, you know who Brad Dourif is. But if you don't, let's just can I just say the words James Veneman, the Gemini killer? Can I just say the voice of Chucky? Can I just say Pierre de Vries in Lynch's Dune? Brad Dorif is a fucking living legend. Let's go back. I'm going to have Jeff start us off. Jeff, uh, this is the character who could or should have been played by Brad Dorif. Who do you got? Yeah,
3: so yeah, I mean Dorf is always, you know, more of a supporting guy, you know. He's he's not right. as 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 much as it would be really interesting to see him in a Karloff or Lugosi style role at the center of a movie. I always feel that he's more effective kind of like, you know, skulking around the edges, sort of like, what's that guy doing? You know, you got to keep your Mm. eye on him uh, because he's going to pounce on you when you least expect it. So, um, you know, a couple of characters that we haven't given enough, uh, you know, credence to in in, in our discussion are the weird ass servants. Like both of the main characters have a servant and they're both really weird in different ways. Mm. There is Lugosi's servant who is like, uh, you know, tall and imposing and, and, and uh, silent who, who with, with kind of this like dagger stare uh, who, who, you know, you is still, but you never know when he's going to pounce. Um, And then on the other hand, you have uh, Karloff's servant with his uh, sort of like, you know, comb down, uh, paste down haircut uh, and world weary expression who just looks like pissed off to have to be doing.
1: That would be Major Domo.
3: Yeah, Major yes. Domo. Yeah. And so like, you know, but he's a dab hand with a gun when he needs to be. Uh, and so yeah. I feel like I would love to see Duraf as either of those servants or, frankly, in a split screen performance as both with different <laughs> makeup and hair so that he could really show ah. off his range. <laughs>
1: okay, that would be fascinating to see. Um, Hope.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with Jeff, though I'm more specifically about major domo. I'd love to see Dureth like have fun with that. Um especially with that like mo from the three stooges hair.
0: Yeah, he that, that required some pomading, I think. Um Lork. Let me say, I mean, I know this is a small cast, the pickings are poor and the crop is lean. But I am right there with both Jeff and Hope. It's all about Perlzig's servant. For me, he's got no lines, but I bet the Dorf would have made a meal out of the opportunity for ticks <laughs> and other physical expressions.
1: Ticks and mannerisms. Yes. Um You know, usually I give this award to the actor who's dialing it up to 11, but, you know, for my money, since almost everyone is dialing it up here, I'm going to give this to the character that I think should have been played by Dorif, if only so he could match the insanity that everyone else is doing, and that is Peter Allison, played by David Manners. You know, it's been mentioned that the Allisons are kind of boring. Well, yes, they are. But think of what would have happened if Dorith had played Peter Allison. He would have fit right in. He probably
0: would have participated in the ritual. Yeah. I bet. He mm-hmm. would have been like, I'm yeah. staying. Yes.
3: This is the All life right. for me. Yeah.
2: He would have told Joan to not be such a sissy about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, See where it goes. See where it goes. Let's see where this goes.
3: <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant.
1: Could be fun, Joan.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, with that, we've arrived at our final segment of the night, the final exam. And this is the part where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about the black cat. Hope, would you please go first and designate a letter grade?
2: Sure, I give it a solid B. Jeff?
3: Jeff? I think I'm going to give it a B plus. I think it has, like, just enough unique qualities to, you know, make it that tiny bit higher above the average. All right.
1: Winnick, what do you got? One more chance to be like Jeff Lewansek. <laughs> I'm giving this a B+. Guys, guess what? Me too. Can we get Hope to change your grade? Mm-hmm. Hope. I don't know. Hope. Can we? Can we pressure you? Hope. All the all the cool kids are doing it.
3: Hope. 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 One
1: of us. One of Google it. Google it. Google it. Google
0: it.
3: Okay. Uh, All right. I
2: give th- I give that sink sinking up a B plus. <laughs> <laughs> said B Eric, you can edit it. Fix it in post. You four got for it. Four, you got four, everybody. <laughs>
3: I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Mm-hmm.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, if you did, tell your friends, share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes we call the internet, have a listening party, bring some combos or fun dip, uh, and and hey, maybe even subscribe.
1: Or better yet, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so it will be easier for others to track
0: down. Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram
1: account, In our Facebook group or on our website, scareyoupod.com. Thanks again to our guests, my old friends Hope Cartelli and Jeff Lewancik. Kids, if people want to find you online, where can they do so?
2: Probably best uh, for me on Instagram, Hopacita. H-O-P-A-C-I-T-A.
3: Jeff, I've committed a more or less wholesale retreat from social media but you can find me on uh through my website uh which is one word jeff is awesome with the dot before the me or <laughs> jeff is also dot me um, you can great. also just Google me, Jeff Lewanzi. There yeah. are, to my knowledge, no other Jeff Luanzigs in the world, so you'll probably <laughs> find me. Um, I'm also about to launch my new uh, substack newsletter, the Jeff Stream. So uh, you'll be able to find all of that info on my website too.
1: And hope to find out about that soap opera. Uh, where does one go?
2: Oh sure, it's getting tired, Mildred. Go to um, you can go to frigid NYC dot com, I believe. Or if you look up It's Getting Tired Mildred on Instagram or on Facebook, you'll find all the info you need.
1: And Jeff, book two of Congress of the Monsters coming out when exactly?
3: Uh, Later this year, probably um, late summer, early fall. And you can buy a copy of Congress of the Monsters at Desert Island in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn.
0: Meanwhile,
1: you can find me at bradfordloric.com And you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker E.A. Winnick. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins,
0: Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. Our theme music is
1: by Edward Elger and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks
0: for joining us, everybody. We'll see you soon in the exquisitely furnished Art Deco mansion. We like to call...
1: Scare you. Now go snort some fun dip. (laughs) 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 This is
0: so much fun. I want to watch movies with you guys like all the time.